For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. The Canadian Supreme Court on April 23rd dismissed the Crown's case. You know, that's what they call the Canadian court, right? The Crown. Anyway, they dismissed the Crown's case against Rick DeSottle, who in 2010 was charged under the Canada's Wildlife Act after killing an elk without a license in the Arrow Lakes region of British Columbia. At the time, DeSottle admitted to the crime, even called the game warden to turn himself in, but asserted that he has the right to hunt in the territory despite being a citizen of the United States. DeSottle has never resided in British Columbia, but is a member of the Lakes Tribe of the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State, USA. He asserted that his cynicist ancestors had occupied territory above and below the 49th parallel, spanning the boundary of the United States and Canada, including the area he was hunting. 
By dismissing the case against DeSottle 7-2, the court in effect reversed British Columbia's 1955 determination that the last member of the Sinext people in Canada had died and that therefore the tribe was extinct and Canada could claim sovereignty over their territory. DeSottle and the other 9,000 or so descendants of the Sinext in Washington state argued that their ancestors had been moved out of their land against their will, and the ruling establishes that both non-citizens and citizens of Canada can claim aboriginal rights under the Canadian Constitution. This is a big deal. This case just proved in a court of law that indigenous rights supersede international borders and that those rights exist and pertain to a people that the country doesn't even recognize as existing. Animals certainly do not recognize the arbitrary European or Jeffersonian lines we humans draw on maps to declare a property line, be it county, state, or country. The peoples of North America did not either. The implications of this case could be interesting down the road, as this decision will likely be tested on things much different than hunting, fishing, and general wandering around rights, which kind of makes them trivial in my mind, for the, you know, purposes of the week in review anyway. It's useless, 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 useless! This week, we've got the law enforcement desk, the kangaroo market, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is brought to you by Steel Power Equipment. Remember, if you need to saw it, snip it, cut it, clip it, blow it, or pressure wash it, The good folks at Steel have something to make your job easier. Although turkey season continues on for a couple of weeks, I have hung up my spurs. Or, you know, lack of turkey spurs, I guess. I did get one nice tom in Tennessee, but my Montana time has been not much, which is a bummer. We did get out this last weekend, and it was great. Got into a lot of birds. They were a little tough, maybe a little call shy, or just not quite in the mood to run up and shake your hand. What was willing to shake your hand, crawl, and maybe bite it were ticks. Eastern Montana can be lousy with ticks most years in the spring, but this year was a record breaker. It was kind of like how you hear people talk about helicopter maintenance versus operation hours, but with tick picking and turkey hunting. Lots of tick picking for every hour of turkey hunting. My lady friend, Sam and I, had our dogs in tow, and they were worse. Every hour of play outside required several hours of tick picking. This is only Sam's second season of turkey hunting, and where the excitement meets the mechanics of turkey hunting, things get very entertaining. Our first spot on the second morning, we called in a monster gobbler, that refused to stop dead center in front of the gun barrel, and I watched as it circled from good position to ungettable position, without the gun ever moving. He had a few younger toms following him, who also declined to stop at high noon on the gun barrel o'clock, but came in at the 9 o'clock position instead, and with the gun still pointed at noon, I hissed, Turn and shoot! Which Sam did but from what I could see and what she told me during her recap of the events, the trigger pulling happened at about the 10 o'clock position, not the 9 o'clock position. Then we went on down the road a mile and set up on another gobbling bird, 
As I started to scratch out a few notes on the Phelps pot call, Sam turned to me and said, you know, I I think they like it when you play hard to get, which you don't know how to do. Smell us now, lady. Moving on. Over to the legislative call to action desk, which is usually concerned with state laws, but this time we're looking at proposed federal legislation. H.R. 917, introduced this session by California Representative Salud Carbajal, would outlaw the import and sale of all kangaroo products in the United States. Now, before you get all up in a hissy over the thought of all of your favorite kangaroo products and byproducts vanishing from the shelves, this would primarily affect the shoe industry. Nike, Adidas, Puma, and the iconic Australian brand R.M. Williams, among others, all use kangaroo leather, known for its unique combination of thinness and durability. You typically think of this kind of legislation as, you know, kind of a lefty cause. And Representative Carbajal and nine other co-sponsors are indeed Democrats. But the bill also has two Republican sponsors, including embattled Florida Congressman Matt Gates. And who can blame him? It makes very good political sense to align yourself with the kangaroos when your reputation could, let's say, use a jump. Or maybe a pouch to hide in? Crikey. Because, of course, kangaroos are as charismatic as all get out, who doesn't love an animal that can support itself on its tail while kicking all comers? Who transports its young in a pouch? Who is the only large animal that hops as an only means of locomotion, reaching a top speed of 45 miles an hour? Its offspring are known as joeys. For Pete's sake, I mean, that's cute, right? I just love them, and I want them, and I want them in a basket, and I want little bow ties. <laughs> I want them to be on a rainbow. Less famously, but still incredibly cool, kangaroos are one of the only species on Earth who have what's known as polyphyodonty, which means that as their front molars are worn down by the very tough and often sand-laden plants they eat, those teeth are expelled and new molars take their place, growing from back to front like a conveyor belt. Which, if you think about it, is bizarre. And at the same time, would kind of be great. Because right now, I'm still itching my tongue on that little chunk of tooth that a little uh, TSS ammunition took out of my molar. If you were a polyphyodonty, that tooth would eventually work its way out your front. Or maybe swallow it and it makes way out your ear. No, thank you. No, thank you. Anyway, you may have a soft spot for the kangaroos, but they could be compared to, let's say, white-tailed deer in the U.S. They're a cool animal, they're iconic, but they're everywhere. They've thrived like crazy in disrupted edge habitats humans create. Smaller marsupials, wallabies, have had a tough time adapting to human presence in Australia especially those who live in trees. The four larger species of kangaroo have, you know, quite simply kicked ass. As of 2021, there are just under 30 million kangaroos in Australia. Even after the devastating fires of 2020, this number is higher than in 2007, 1997, 1987. Populations follow boom and bust cycles following the country's periodic droughts. And the entire kangaroo industry, all the meat, and leather harvested every year kills only around 2 million animals, which this year will be about 6% of the total population. 
as befits a species that is on the country's coat of arms, as well as its currency, Australia is extremely careful about this harvest and has very stringent guidelines for taking kangaroos. The kangaroo industry employs only accredited shooters who, by law, must shoot animals in the head to reduce or eliminate suffering. Processing facilities reject carcasses not killed with a headshot, which disincentivizes any pros from cutting corners and going for easier but less lethal shots. Almost all the ruse harvested are males, and shooters are not permitted to target females with obvious young in their pouch or at foot. If this industry went away, we can predict what would happen, and what has happened in other periods of overabundance. Farmers and property owners would poison ruse and shoot them in less humane ways, and the landscape would not be able to support their numbers, leaving them to starve. Ending the kangaroo industry would be terrible for kangaroos, as crazy as it sounds. As we often comment when these kinds of stories come up, it's very, very strange that almost no one talks about banning cow leather. Why do bovines count less than kangaroos? And although there are vegan polyurethane leathers, the environmental impact of that manufacturing is far from zero. And for those of you who are out there concerned about the emissions of cow burps and farts, well, kangaroos are one of the only grazing animals who produce no methane as a byproduct of digestion. Instead, their digestion produces acetate that their bodies use as energy. In fact, scientists are interested in trying to implant the bacteria from kangaroo systems into the stomachs and intestines of cows to cut their methane emissions. Maybe save a little for the old snort dog while you're at it. That girl can get stinky. So, although it might be hard to imagine that this bill would pass, we can't get too overconfident. California passed a kangaroo ban in 1971 that's never been enforced, but the law is still on the books and has been the focus of intense lobbying by animal rights groups over the last few years. And several high-profile Olympic athletes have signed on to this recent effort to push a national ban. So, keep that dialing finger in peak physical condition by picking up the phone, calling your duly elected member of Congress, and telling them that HR 917 would be terrible for kangaroos. Get a jump on it. Do it today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Hey, guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. 
I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Bouncing over to the law enforcement desk and starting with a pair of stories out of the Sunshine State. The trial of Joe Frater and Chris Stone recently came to a conclusion described as, quote, insta-famous hunters. The pair pled no contest to poaching violations in the state of California. California wildlife officers put in an effort described as SCI-worthy by the Sacramento Bee to bring these two men to justice. Analyzing the string of too-good-to-be-true social media posts, as well as using trail cameras, aerial photography, DNA analysis, stakeouts, and even vehicle tracking devices to build a case, the two men were shown to have engaged in extensive baiting taking deer in non-permitted locations, trespassing, and failing to properly report harvested deer. We've talked before about how hard it can be to make poaching cases stick. Penalties for wildlife crimes are often very light, and judges who face crimes of the more heinous human varieties sometimes don't understand the full scope of wildlife crimes or their implications. You get the sense that these California conservation officers were doing absolutely everything to make sure that didn't happen with their above and beyond effort. The two, at the time suspected men, faced a maximum penalty of $40,000 in fines and a year in jail, but the district attorneys, the state lawyers responsible for prosecuting the case, were taken aback by the extent of the investigation and the resources it consumed. Freighter and Stone ended up with the lightest of light penalties, small fines, informal probation, and temporary suspension of hunting privileges. Penalties and fines that come nowhere near the cost of the resources involved in building the case. They used a surveillance plane to trail the men from overhead. They set out motion-activated cameras. They put tracking devices on their pickups. They combed through their text messages and tallied who they called and logged the minutes they were on the phone. They took samples from the guts left behind from kills, swabbed the bed of Freighter's pickup for deer blood and hair for DNA evidence. One of the defense attorneys mentioned that there was more spent at the lab on DNA analysis for this case than they see at a human murder trial. And speaking of DNA, we should probably stop and mention that it was recently the 20th anniversary of the publication of the human genome. That discovery has led to revelations like how ancient humans migrated into the Americas and around the world, how disease attacks the body, how different attributes like eye color are created, and how attributes like sneezing, when your eyes are exposed to sudden light, are expressed. 
By mapping the human genome, we were able to apply the technique and do the same thing with bees, bighorn sheep, ferrets, protozoans, even long-extinct Neanderthals and Homo habilis, and of course, our favorite dogs and wolves, and dog-wolf hybrids. Publishing the genome simply meant listing every letter in the genetic code of a few human beings, but having that information available meant that scientists could understand which genes and chromosomes are shared between individuals and species. We share about 45% of our genes with bananas, for example. No, that isn't where, hey, is that a banana in your pocket? You just, you know, that thing. And which parts of the genome were responsible for which functions. Without that enormous accomplishment in 2001, this show would be much less interesting. But back to the story at hand. After weeks of stakeouts, both day and night, they raided the two men's homes, going room to room, rifling through drawers, freezers, closets, seizing deer head trophies, archery equipment, cell phones, frozen venison, computers, trail cameras, memory cards, taxidermy, and butcher receipts. At Freighter's home, they seized salt licks, mineral blocks, and bags of feed. Interestingly, the two poachers are themselves members of the criminal justice system. Freighter, a corrections officer at a local prison, Stone, an investigator for the same district attorney's office that was responsible for the prosecution. So maybe there was a bit of protecting one's own in this case, at the expense of protecting wildlife and enforcing the rules. Freighter and Stone's attorneys argued that the violations in question basically were like speeding tickets. And, you know, they didn't mean it. The violations were so technical that any hunter would be in violation of a crime on any hunt. Stone pleaded no contest to one count of hunting over bait. He was fined $780 and placed on three years probation, along with the suspension of hunting privileges during the probationary period. Freighter pleaded no contest in January to two counts of hunting deer over bait. He was fined $5,000 placed on one year of informal probation and agreed to forfeit his hunting privileges for a year. He has accepted responsibility, paid a fine to one of California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Wildlife Conservation Funds, and surrendered one of his bows, which he understands will be used to raise additional conservation funds, which is what Freighter's attorney told the bee, quote, he is happy to support a cause so close to his heart. Which, if I'm being honest, doesn't really sit right with me. Sounds a bit smug. Plenty of ways to support conservation without paying a court-appointed fine. Think of what you could have done with all those attorney's fees, for instance. Was this case a misuse of valuable resources directed at two individuals who just bent the rules? Or was this case poorly prosecuted? Here's another one from California. This is a side story that will make you think. This got sent into the Ask Cal email, by the way. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeatEater.com. I was invited on my first duck hunt in January and was very excited to get into the duck game. Unfortunately, due to the ammo shortage, I was not able to locate the shells my buddy recommended in time, but he was nice enough to offer to bring me a box. Needless to say, I was a bit on edge when my 2 a.m. alarm sounded. I was worried that my buddy would forget to bring the shells he offered, so I tossed a box of the shells I was using for quail a few months back into the bottom of my pack. Fast forward a few hours, I get to the refuge, get signed in, drive to the parking lot, and am getting my gear ready as my buddy hands me the box of shells he spoke of. 
I toss them into the top of my pack, forgetting all about the other box of shells. This area has a maximum of 25 shells in possession in the field. I knew this from diligently reading the regs, and also heard it announced on the loudspeaker. As we are walking the mile out to the blind, we happen to get checked by game wardens. I readily offer my pack to the warden, and my heart absolutely dropped when he pulled out the extra box. Despite my explanation of my error and pleads for mercy on a newbie who made an honest mistake, he wrote me a citation. This citation resulted in a fine of $1,525. Fortunately, the fine was not an amount that was ruinous to my finances, but I feel like I am now labeled as a poacher or someone who's trying to get around the rules if I interact with another warden. I also feel probably because I didn't like writing that check, that this would have been a good opportunity to warn and educate a new duck hunter. I am trying to take this as a learning opportunity, and one that was absolutely my fault, and move forward without a bitter taste in my mouth, but I can't help feel a bit salty. P.S. I am also happy to report that I got several tasty ducks and a goose that day, and that I took home my first turkey, second day of the season, and can't wait to start cooking. The postscript, in case you're wondering, has nothing to do with the story or the point. Rather, it's just a good reminder waterfowl is expensive sometimes and tasty. In this example, a simple search. No judges, court orders, no lawyers, no surveillance, $1,525 fine to a first-time waterfowler that, quote, didn't mean to. Sound familiar? The previous story the lawyers argued on the clean record of the defendants who had been license holders from 13 years old and on and never had a blemish on their records, and here they sit at, let's say, 40 years old. I ask you, dear listeners, who's got a better argument for a reduced sentence? Next up, the gavel falls hard on a group of Washington anglers in British Columbia. The case of Wolgamot, McGee, and Hoover. Despite having names like Harry Potter characters, magic didn't save them from the long muggle arm of the BC law. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. We'll start with the fines. Wolgamot was fined $15,000 and prohibited from fishing or holding a fishing license anywhere in Canada for 10 years. He was also ordered to forfeit all fishing equipment seized on the vessel being used valued at over $6,000, and two outboard engines, 300 horsepower and a 25 horsepower Yamaha, valued at approximately $32,500. He was also ordered to pay the storage and transport fees for the seized vessel with an estimated cost of approximately $10,000. Hoover was fined $5,000, received a two-year prohibition against fishing or holding a fishing license anywhere in Canada, and forfeited all of his fishing equipment that was also seized as evidence. McGee was also fined $5,000, received a one-year probation against fishing or holding a fishing license anywhere in Canada, and forfeited all of his fishing equipment as well. Fishery officers determined that not all of the anglers had valid fishing licenses, that the catch was not accurately recorded, and that the fish had been processed in such a way that the species and size was difficult to determine. Fishery officers seized a 30-foot cutwater fishing vessel, 26 Chinook salmon, 
a lingcod, rockfish, as well as a significant quantity of fishing gear, the fines, fees, and prohibitions, plus the forfeiture of the engines, fishing gear, illegal catch, underscores the seriousness of violating fishing rules and regulations under Canada's Fisheries Act intended to protect and preserve at-risk fishing populations. After digging around a little on the Fisheries Canada website and looking at the boat that was seized, which starts around the $200,000 mark, well used, it appears that these anglers needed an annual fishing stamp that'll set you back $6.13 plus tax and an annual Tidewater fishing license which will ding you for $105.28. That's $105.28. So for the price of $111.41 and some studying of the regulations and restrictions on top of the usual fuel, bait, food, and gear, uh, would have been a lot less expensive of a trip, fellas. Let's, for argument's sake, say Wolgamot, McGee, and Hoover were just fishing and making the common mistakes of forgetting to renew your license not checking with your buddies about theirs, not looking over the New Year's regulations and restrictions, you know, the common stuff. Well, if that sounds like you and your group of buddies, don't go fishing in Canada. Cha-ching! That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to send a big thanks to Steel, makers of those 30-inch pruning shears that help me butcher animals while on the road. Be sure to check those out by checking out www.steeldealers.com and most importantly, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L that's askcal at themeateater.com Thanks again and I'll talk to you next week. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.